Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt, and I'm a board-certified integrative and functional nutritionist. I live on the seacoast of New Hampshire and work with clients in my virtual practice all over the world through private consultations and online nutrition and functional medicine programs. Functional medicine nutrition is all about diving deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. And that's exactly what I tackle in this podcast. All things health, food, and nutrition. Unpacking current research and almost a decade of clinical experience. I love to bring experts and thought leaders to the table so we can all learn together. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive in. I don't know where you are in the world right now, but here in New Hampshire, the flu is flying around like, whoa. Um, I heard that 100 kids from my daughter's school were home with the flu. It's not even a big school. Um, Now add to that the threat of the coronavirus and everyone is a-freaking out, myself included. I just couldn't go on social media or even turn on the TV last week without hearing about it. And then would also hear the backlash. Why is everyone freaking out about the coronavirus? Because the flu is way more deadly. You should be scared of that. Cool. Uh, If you have anxiety flags like I do, they were flying high this week, um, which is why I'm here in your ear hole right now. I was planning to do a listener question show this week, but um, we're going to put that one off so we can hopefully soothe your souls this week. Now, I know that I've already discussed cold and flu prevention on the show before quite a few times. We've got episode seven, natural cold and flu prevention. We've got episode 36, natural cold and flu prevention with herbalist Amy McKelvey from Her Vital Way. We've got episode 80, Uh, staying healthy through the holidays. And I talk specifically on airport travel and uh, traveling on airplanes in that episode. I did get asked specifically about airport travel right now. I'm not going to go into much detail on this particular show, but uh, travel back to episode 80. You can learn a thing or two. I will also link to Dr. Ben Lynch. Um, He is the founder of Seeking Health. Um, he also created or wrote the book, Dirty Jeans, and he did a Facebook Live last week that I found to be pretty good. So I'm going to share that link with you in the show notes. Um, he was talking a lot about the coronavirus, what we can do per- for prevention, and also his opinion on airport travel right now. Cancel it. That's what he said. Um, so you can listen to that one if you're worried about traveling around. Now, All of those episodes are great, sound as a pound advice. So go back and listen to the other episodes if you've not done so already. Uh, But despite having all of that info in my brain, I still find myself spending a lot of time looking into antivirals and protection against all of this. And I figured that if I wanted all of that information, then surely you did too. So Again, here I am. I'm going to compile all of my resources here for you so you can just listen, stop here and employ these tactics. Or if you want to do a bit of a deeper dive for yourself, there's going to be a lot of PubMed links and other sorts of links all up in the show notes. So you can go down any rabbit hole you choose 
to soothe your anxiety. Now, the funny thing about this is as I was compiling all this information, my daughter and my husband had the flu, hence my vested interest. And then I ended up getting it a few days later. So I was able to put a lot of this stuff into practice. Uh, later, I'm going to tell you exactly what I personally did because I only had a fever and symptoms for like 24 hours. Um, you can tell I'm a little stuffed up right now. I have this like lingering, like weird cold symptoms. Um, but I was not laid out and leveled beyond like a weekend. Um, most people that I'm talking to were down and out for well over a week. I just spoke with somebody yesterday who was in bed for eight days straight. So it seems like what's going around is pretty gnarly. Um, but if we can support our immune systems, hopefully it's not going to take us down so badly. So today we're going to go over general immune maintenance and prevention, uh, what to do if you've been exposed or you're around somebody who has it like myself. I mean, my five-year-old was kissing me on the lips with the flu. So I was like, okay, here we go. This is going to happen. Um, what we can do to prevent the spread. Don't kiss people with the flu on the lips. I'll it's like a little spoiler alert. Uh, what to do when you first start feeling symptoms, treatment for early onset flu, and then ways to ease your symptoms, including what to do with a fever, because that is a big one um, that I've been getting a lot of questions about. Now, I want you to know that the incubation period of influenza is about 48 hours. Some folks will succumb within 24 hours. Um, this means that if you've been exposed to someone who knowingly has the flu, you've got about a day to leap yourself into action. So I want you to have this episode on the ready. We're going to discuss nutritional supplements. We're going to discuss herbs. Um, I will briefly touch upon homeopathics as an option. And of course, we're going to weave some powerful food as medicine tactics into all of this. Now I did, in addition to the show notes and the links to the PubMed research and everything I talk about, I actually put together a flu prevention and care guide for you. So if you want that, now if you're already on my newsletter list, no worries, it's going to be sent out to you anyway. If you're not, I'm going to put the link in the show notes to the guide so you can grab that. Um, that way you don't feel like you have to take notes throughout this entire episode. It's all packaged up for you there, including recipes and lots of goodies. Um, and one thing, I'm just going to ask you for a favor. If you appreciate the guide and or the work that I'm doing here through this podcast, please, please, please leave me a podcast review on iTunes. It's so helpful to get this podcast into the hands of more people so we can help more people get healthy. Um, I know it's kind of a pain in the butt, but the way that I see it, it's not a terrible exchange. You know, taking two minutes of your time isn't the worst exchange for the 25 plus hours of work this week that I've put into the show. Yeah, cool. All right. Appreciate it so much. Now I got to shout out this episode is sponsored by Coyote River Hemp Company, which is quite fitting because I use their hemp CBD oil to ease my symptoms when I had the flu. Um, I was thinking to myself, you know, I really don't want to use Advil. Um, I didn't want to bring my fever down for all the reasons that we'll talk about later in the show, but I was in a ton of pain. I mean, the body aches from the flu are no joke. So I figured it would be worth a try and it, w here's why, um, 
cannabinoids can downregulate cytokine production. Now, cytokines, you might have heard this word before, they are inflammatory chemicals that your body produces in response to infection. And it's actually not the infection itself that causes the pain and the body ache, but it's this cytokine response. So it's not the flu that's making you feel crappy, but it's this inflammatory cascade that the flu kicks off. And now anything that can reduce the cytokines will also lessen disease severity, um, reduce complications like lung damage with the flu, and just make you feel better, hopefully. Um, We're going to talk about some other plant medicine specific herbs that can lower the cytokines um, that are packaged up with influenza. We'll talk about those later in the show, but I had a lot of luck with um, Coyote River's hemp oil. So that would be something to try. And again, I'll mention it later in the show as well. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is that CBD can also upregulate T regulatory cells. This is something that I've talked about before on the show and on my blog. Um, Tips for coping with an autoimmune flare-up. It's episode 67. This is actually one of the primary reasons that I take Coyote River hemp oil every single day. It's for my autoimmunity. It's one of the things that I do to um, upregulate Treg cells, which are really important for autoimmune disease. So I know that I talked about um, taking it for anxiety last week, and I certainly do that, but it's really more so, even if I'm feeling great my mood is great, my anxiety is low, my pain is low, I'm still taking it every single day to continue to feel great. Um, And then with the flu, I found, and I heard this from a couple of different people as well, that it can reduce the pain enough just to help you get some sleep when you have the flu because sleep is so important. So if you're a listener of the podcast, you get to save 10% off using my code FUNK10, F-U-N-K-10. If you go to goodandcompany.co, Um, I just went and did it myself because I'm not above using my own podcast discount. Um, If you spend $75 or more, you get free shipping. So I recommend getting the 1,000 milligram bottle. Um, It's more expensive than the 500 milligram bottle, but it's more cost effective. It will last longer. That's the one that I like to use the most. All right. So let's move on. This is something that I went back and forth, back and forth of whether or not I was going to bring this up. But when we're talking about influenza prevention, there's always going to be the question, well, what about the flu vaccine? And there is perhaps no subject in healthcare more polarizing than vaccines. Listen, I understand that people hold what I say in high regard And I understand the power that comes with that, which is why I'm very careful to not give medical advice here on my show or on my social media. I say it at least once a week. I will not give medical advice or health advice in my DMs. It is not appropriate. It is not responsible. It's also why I have a disclaimer at the start of every single episode of this show. And I've never, not ever once given advice about vaccines. I am not a vaccine expert, and I simply do not find it to be appropriate for me to discuss at this point in my career. Um, I did have somebody reach out to me this fall in a very accusatory way, so I'm going to use this opportunity to set the record straight in case there's any question out, out there about where I stand on this and whether or not it even matters. Um 
an account follower on social media contacted me to let me know she was disappointed, direct quote, that I was advocating for an anti-vax lifestyle, another direct quote, and for cutting out modern medicine, another direct quote. Now, listen, if I was worried about keeping everyone happy with the words that I say, then I would say exactly nothing of substance. I wouldn't be able to put out any content at all. This podcast would not exist because trying to keep everyone happy is impossible. So I understand that some things I say, not all of my listeners are going to agree with. And I'm cool with that. And I think you guys are all pretty cool with that too. We're all adults here. But when I am falsely accused of being irresponsible with my platforms, that really upsets me because I take this role very seriously and I spend a lot of time creating free content so people can live their healthiest lives. And I never want to take advantage of that. So the irony of the situation is that she contacted me literally 30 minutes after I got home from my daughter's five-year pediatrician appointment where she got all of her shots. Here's my response. Um, I'm going to read it out loud to you for a couple of different reasons, which I'll explain in a second. I actually just got home from my my daughter's five-year checkup where she got all of her shots. She is fully vaccinated and I have never once advocated for an anti-vaxxing lifestyle, nor have I advocated for cutting out modern medicine. Last week, I shared another doctor's post regarding the flu shot. I did not create the content. I did not recommend it to anyone. I shared what he wrote. We don't get the flu shot for a myriad of reasons, not limited to the fact that I have an autoimmune disease and it does not make sense for me or my family. But I have never taken a public stance against vaccines and have even refused to answer questions regarding vaccines on my podcast and my social media. I have talked extensively about how to naturally support your body's own immunity. I have a hard time with people trying to police the content I put out on my own platform. If you believe so strongly in a topic, that's great. Build a platform to do your own advocacy work. But telling me what I can and cannot say on my own platform is inappropriate. So that is my forever stance. Please keep that in mind when I mention this report. I'm going to mention a a report and I will link to it in my show notes. And if it rubs up against what you believe to be true about vaccines, you can just move on from it. Okay. I don't need the hate mail. I will not read it. Um, So the the, uh, report is entitled Vaccines for Preventing Influenza in Healthy Adults. And it looked at 50 different reports, 40 of which were clinical trials of over 70,000 people. So it's a good sample size we're working with here. You know, it's a a big group of people. Here's a quote. In the relatively uncommon circumstance of vaccine matching the viral circulating strain and high circulation, 4% of unvaccinated people versus 1% of vaccinated people developed influenza symptoms. The corresponding figures for poor vaccine matching were 2% in 1%. Authors' conclusions were that influenza vaccines have a modest effect in reducing influenza symptoms in working days lost. There is no evidence that they affect complications such as pneumonia or transmission and had no effect on hospital admissions or complication rates. So some people 
just don't want to run the risk of vaccination for those odds. Um, and I personally fall into that category. I, I also want to point out, and this is a personal choice that I've made for myself. I also want to point out that I see this from a public health and state safety standpoint, and I take my role in the collective pretty gosh darn seriously. So I will discuss ways to prevent the spread of influenza, what I do and what you can also do. And I think we can all put more effort on this front too, because it is our collective responsibility. And I am certainly not arguing that point. So as always, it's not a black and white discussion. There are so many areas of gray. Um, and I think one of the reason it is so polarizing is because people stand in the black area and then people stand in the white area and they refuse to acknowledge the middle area. Um, here's a case in point of how it can be a lot of gray area. Um, this review includes 15 out of 36 trials funded by industry. An earlier systemic review of 274 influenza vaccine studies published uh found that industry-funded studies were published in more prestigious journals and cited more. Studies funded from public sources were significantly less likely to report conclusions favorable to the vaccines. The review showed that reliable evidence on influenza vaccines is thin, but there is evidence of widespread manipulation of conclusions. So basically, some of the information that we're receiving about vaccines is funded and manipulated by the industry of itself. In other words, the plot thickens, right? Um, I'm not saying vaccines are, are good, bad, or indifferent. It's just, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, and the point is, I, I'm not telling you to get the flu shot or not to get the flu shot. That is your body, that is your business, and that is your choice. But we do know that the flu shot doesn't completely prevent the flu in most cases. So whether or not you get the vaccine, you also want to have some tools in your arsenal and some tricks up your sleeve for influenza prevention. And that is really the purpose of today's show. It's not to judge or chastise anybody who decides to get the flu vaccine or not get the flu vaccine. And let that be extraordinary clear. Um, I want you guys to arm yourself with preventative care um, as well as natural ways to soothe yourself if you do come down with the flu. And so maybe we all don't have to live in so much fear. I feel like the flu had a major rebrand this this decade uh, or the past decade. And the marketing guy was like, hey, so here's the deal. Your new tagline is going to be, it can be fatal because I have heard that so much in the past six years. It's like I heard it when I was pregnant. I heard it uh, after I gave birth. I've heard it the, the past five and a half years of being a mom. Uh, well, it could be fatal. The flu can be fatal. And I just don't remember hearing that, you know, uh, growing up as a kid or even in my early adulthood. So I, I feel like it's a new fear tactic push. And I, I get it. I'm certainly not trying to downplay the seriousness of flu complications. Influenza can be fatal. There absolutely can be complications. I'm not arguing that. I guess my question is, does putting the fear of death into people make it any less fatal? Um, what I'm about to say is going to earn me some flack, no doubt, because it's still considered woo-woo and weird and out there. 
but it's actually not. We have to look to the current research on how much power our belief systems have on our physical bodies. And think about it. There's a really big difference between running around thinking, I'm terrified that the flu can be fatal, so I'm going to make a lot of fear-based decisions, and thinking, my body knows what to do. I trust my body. My immune system functions well to take care of me. Um, you know, if you, if you say both of those things out loud, which one feels physically better in your body, right? It's not the fear-based thinking. Um, the truth of the matter is if you give your body what it needs, it does know what to do. And maybe, just maybe, we have to put more faith in our bodies and less faith in a medical system that is constantly telling us to be fearful of our bodies. With that said, let us dive into prevention. You should be supporting your immune health every single day, not just when you get sick. That's not how many of us go about it. We're like, "Uh uh-oh, I feel the sniffles coming on. Let me pound some emergency. Hey, it might work, but what would work even better is to do all the things that your immune system needs to do every single day of your life. Um, We have to start with the obvious, ample hydration. Stay drinking water. Um, I find that it's a little bit tricky to do in the winter. Thirst seems to go down, but you still have to get plenty of water and hydration into your system. We need good nutrition. I'm not going to go into too much detail here because it's, you know, what this show is all about. So listen to the show. Um, But we need good, solid nutrition, low sugar, um, pathogens like viruses, uh, bacterial pathogens. They like to feed on sugar. So getting sugar out of our diet um, and I'm not talking about natural sugars and fruit sugars. I'm talking about added sugars um, is really, really important for immune health. Uh, around this time of year, I find that I do really well with eating week four of the carb compatibility project. So if you've ever done my CCP before, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, cutting out most sugar. Uh, from foods. I just find that my immune system functions way better. Um, And if you haven't done the CCP, I will be offering it again in the spring date to be announced, but you can jump on that. We can also do regular consumption of antiviral foods. I've interviewed Amy McKelvey, the CEO of Her Vital Way, a couple of times on the show, and I love the way that she talks about herbs and plants and how we can just infuse them into our daily life. So it's not like, oh, I feel something coming on. I'm going to like mainline oregano oil. It's like, how do we use small amounts of of herbs and plant medicine in our day-to-day life to take care of ourselves. So things like fresh and dried herbs, oregano, sage, rosemary, thyme. Um, I've got a, you know, she talked about doing thyme tea. You can place five to eight sprigs of fresh thyme in a mug, cover it with boiling water, and then cover the mug. You always, anytime you're brewing any type of tea, you always want to brew it covered. Um, Let it steep for about 10 minutes and then drink that. You know, you can do that every single day. Astragalus, 
She talked about putting astragalus root into her soups and her stews. Um, I have a couple of recipes that use astragalus powder. You can put astragalus powder into your elderberry syrup. You can I uh, put astragalus powder into uh, my smoothies and the hot chocolate recipe I have on my website. Cooking with garlic in ginger always a good idea. Shiitake mushrooms are really powerful for um, immune modulators. I have. I just made this last week and it was so good. It's going to make it its way to my blog, but it will also be in the PDF guide that I send out. An immune boosting zucchini noodle ramen soup. It is stacked with immune regulating stuff and it is quite tasty. Uh, Peppermint, cinnamon, turmeric, all of these things are really, really good to just work into your day-to-day diet. Um, we have to look at our stress. What are your cortisol levels doing? Cortisol directly impacts the immune system. Stress suppresses the immune system. So we're going to be more likely to come down with every bug that comes our way. We really, really need to pay attention to this. Uh, nutrient deficiencies. If you're not eating an adequate diet, um, the immune system requires a lot of nutrients, which we'll talk about in a bit. So if you're operating at a deficit, your immune system is not going to be up to snuff. Um, You guys, I did mention the micronutrient panel on last week's show, and I apologize if quite a few of you reached out to me. I forgot to put the link in the show notes, um, but you can go to my website. It's now in the show notes, but you could also go to my website, uh, erinholthealth.com forward slash tests and consults. Um, and I added the tab to my website so it's easier to find, but that's where you can find the micronutrient panel to see what your nutrient status is. A really big one is under sleeping. If you're not getting enough sleep, the immune system has a harder time overtraining or not moving your body at all. So there has to be that happy medium of moving your body in an appropriate way that, uh, doesn't trigger the stress levels too much and, helps out your immune system. So basically, modern day, (laughs) our high stress, underslept, inappropriately fueled modern day lifestyle is not great for the immune system. So we have to take a lot of strides to um, kind of go against the grain to take care of ourselves. Um, I'm going to mention some supplements coming up and a quick note on supplements. I will mention them here and I'll mention quite a few of them. And it does not mean that you need to run out and buy every single one of them. I personally do take most of the things that I'll mention on today's show. But when it comes to my health, the way that I look at it, I would rather spend money preventatively. You know, like the supplements will cost me some coin, but because I've been taking them consistently, I didn't have to miss a week of work, you know, which would have cost me a lot more money. You know, I'm here recording this a couple days out from the onset of a flu, which, you know, kind of speaks to how well I've been able to support my immune system through everything. Um, you know, a couple of winters ago, I got hit back to back one winter. I think I got walking pneumonia. I'm trying to have a last winter. I remember it was last winter. I got walking pneumonia and we were away. So I had to go to a walk-in clinic that cost me a lot of money. I had to get lung x-rays that cost me a lot of money. I had to buy prescription inhalers. And then I went to Walgreens and bought like everything on the shelf to try to combat the symptoms 
after the fact. Um, and then I had to miss over a week of work too. So, you know, illness can take us out, make us feel crappy, but can also cost us a ton of money. So I tend to try to spend my money on the front side of things if I can. I'm going to call out a book. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes, but a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is discussed in a lot of depth in the book, Herbal Antivirals, Natural Remedies for Emerging and Resistant Viral Infections by Stephen Buhner. He's an herbalist. I am not. Um, when I'm talking about herbs today, I might butcher some names. So for all the true herbalists out there listening, please forgive me. Um, I want to make sure that I'm paying the deep respect to plant medicine that it deserves. Um, but some of these words I've only ever seen in writing, so I'm going to do my best with them. But um, I'm a little bit embarrassed if I, if I butcher words, so be easy on me. Okay, so let's talk about some specific nutrients and potentially supplements for overall immune health. Because when your immune system is amplified, if it's trying to fight something off, you're going to be using up more of these than you normally do. And then we have to start with vitamin D. Always we're talking about vitamin D3 in the form of a supplement. And I like that vitamin D3 paired with vitamin K2. I've talked about that on the show before, why that's important. I'm not going to recommend any dosing because dosing is really based on your current status. Now, if you're, you know, you're moving your way through cold and flu season and you're taking like 2000 IUs of vitamin D every day, that's probably not a problem. But if you don't know what your status is, um, it's hard to dose accurately because you don't want to overdose. And if you're underdosing, then you're, you know, you're not bringing your vitamin D levels up to snuff. We also have to look at vitamin A. And this is, when I'm talking about vitamin A, I'm talking about true vitamin A, preformed vitamin A, not beta carotene. Beta carotene is great, an antioxidant, but it is not the same thing as vitamin A. Our bodies can convert it into vitamin A, but not super efficiently. So we do, for immune health, need true preformed vitamin A. Um, food sources of this are in liver, everybody's favorite, uh, cod liver oil, grass-fed dairy. Again, dosing I like to say it's based on your current status. Um, you can do higher doses at the onset of an infection. Don't do this preventatively. Like if you're just like moving and grooving and you want to prevent it, don't do the like really high doses. But it, at the onset of an infection, it can be helpful to do those high doses. It can cause toxicity if you're pregnant. So be extremely mindful of that. The two different kinds I like are both liquid. One is from Apex Energetics and the other one is from Seeking Health. I think those are both pretty great. And then we've got everybody's favorite, vitamin C. Now you, it's pretty okay to like dose yourself up with vitamin C because your body's going to let you know if it's the dose is too high. You'll get loose stools if you take too much, or you might get some gas or cramping in the belly. Um, I think it's fine to do like you know, two grams, 2000 milligrams, um, up to 3000 milligrams. You don't want to get it all in one fell swoop. You can kind of like sip it throughout the course of the day. I love seeking health's, um, 
They have a powder that's quite tasty. It also has some flavonoids in it. Another really good way to get in vitamin C is liposomal vitamin C. Um, viruses live inside of our cells, so liposomal can drive that vitamin C inside the cell. Um, all the supplements I'm talking about today, you can get on my online dispensary if you're looking for where to purchase. You certainly don't have to, but just know that they do live there if you're looking for um, specific things. And then zinc and selenium can also be really helpful during influenza infections. Zinc, you want to shoot for, I don't know, 25 to 40 grams a day. Um, I, I don't like to see people go too high with zinc because it can throw up throw off copper. Um, great ways to get in zinc through the diet are oysters, shellfish, red meat, pumpkin seeds, um, selenium is another good one. You want about 200 micrograms per day. So be sure you're checking your other supplements and your multivitamins to make sure that you're not overdoing these things. Um, food sources of selenium include Brazil nuts, seafood, sunflower seeds. Ocean fish are among the richest sources of selenium. Um, Interestingly, selenium in freshwater fish is more variable and it can be limited because selenium levels uh, really reflect the selenium levels in the soil. So the, the, the selenium levels in freshwater fish reflect the selenium levels in soil. Um, and it's exactly what we were talking about last week. It's like you need to know where your food was grown or, you know, your food is only as nutritious as the soil that it was grown in. So uh, mineral content really varies depending on where the food was grown. And um, that even applies to to fish. Um, so keep that in mind. All right. I told you I would give you the exact lineup of what I was doing. So this is these are the supplements that I was taking in order when, when Hattie and Scott were sick because I was like, I got to stay healthy. Like somebody has to stay healthy here. Um, so I was taking glutathione. I kind of doubled down on glutathione supplementation because it can help the body combat viral infection. I talked about that on episode 80. Um, most glutathione supplements are hard to absorb because the molecule is pretty unstable. So you want to make sure that if you're supplementing it with it, you take a liposomal, um, in an acetal version I use the Apex Energetics Trisomal Glutathione, and it also contains NAC and acetylcysteine, which has been shown to inhibit the replication of influenza A. So kind of get like more bang for your buck with that one. I was also taking elderberry syrup. So I have, um, it's my most visited recipe on my website, my elderberry syrup recipe. So I actually changed the recipe a little bit. I added double the amount of elderberries and it made a more like a thicker syrup, which I really, really liked. So I changed the recipe on my website to reflect that. I just gave more variants in how much elderberries you can use. And obviously the more elderberries you use, the more potent it's going to be in terms of its antiviral capacity. Um, I do want to point out here that elderberry syrup might not be appropriate for some folks with autoimmune disease because it can increase cytokine levels. Um, so we were talking about cytokines earlier in the show. It is not necessarily a good thing to 
push up cytokines in those of us with dysregulated dysregulated, uh, immune systems. So I just want to post that as a disclaimer. We do not have the time to get into that conversation in depth today, but it's something to be aware of. Now, I myself take elderberry syrup without problem, and I do have a diagnosed autoimmune disease. So it's not going to be the case for everybody, just some folks. So if, and if you've been taking elderberry syrup with no problem, you're, you're good. Um, if you notice that you feel kind of crappy after taking elderberry syrup, that could be a good indication that it's not working for you. And then resveratrol, resveratrol can inhibit Middle East respiratory syndrome coronavirus infection. Um, so I've been taking that sort of preventatively, um, Resveratrol, unfortunately, is another one of those that is poorly absorbed, which is why I use the emulsified formula from Apex Energetics. It's made from Japanese knotweed, which can lower cytokines. So that's actually something that you could take if you do have an infection, not just for prevention. Um, so what do you, so all of those, all these things you can do to just kind of like support the immune system, take care of yourself during this cold, flu, craziness. Um, Now, if you've been exposed or you're around somebody who you know has it, a couple of things that you can do to support yourself even further. One is sauna therapy. Now, not everybody has a sauna in their house, but if you can access a sauna, an infrared sauna, or even get yourself into a, um, a hot yoga studio, it can raise the body's temperature to basically create an inhospitable environment for pathogens. This is why infrared sauna is uh, used as a therapy for mold and chronic Lyme and other infections. On top of that, it also helps the body to excrete heavy metals, plasticizers like BPA. So there's a lot of benefit to raising the internal body temperature, get yourself to sweat it out. I will say sauna is not appropriate if you have a fever. You know, you kind of wanted to take a hands-off approach to a fever um, and you don't want to like continue to increase your body's temperature. So if you're feeling healthy, but you're surrounded by people who are not, get yourself in a sauna or a hot, a hot room, yoga hot room. You can also... This is something to try. I mean, I was like, I will do anything. Um, You can do some medicinal smoke, like um, saging, you know, burning sage throughout your house or your office space, if that's allowed, Um, because medicinal smoke has been shown to reduce airborne bacteria. I'm not so sure about viruses. Um, The study that I looked at really specifically talked about bacteria. And it also, um, they used medicinal smoke for 60 minutes. So an hour's kind of a long time. You'd be like coughing and choking. But I just kept going around and just kind of smoking out the house uh, as much as I could. Now, talking about preventing the spread. So we talked about vaccines as a way to potentially prevent the spread, right? And there's other ways to do this as well, um, to prioritize public health and to prioritize those folks who are more susceptible to complications of the flu. Um, And the nurse from Hattie's school sent home an email to everyone. And I think it's really important. I'm going to read part of it here simply because I don't think people realize how long we're contagious with the flu. Um, So she says, just a quick reminder regarding influenza and illness guidelines. 
I am still seeing children who have been diagnosed with influenza or who have been out with influenza-like symptoms being sent back to school too early. Fever is not the only indicator that determines whether or not children are still contagious. Please pay close attention to symptoms and how your child is feeling. The rule of thumb for time out of school for children with confirmed influenza is five to seven days from the onset of symptoms. As far as children who do not have influenza or influenza-like illness, please follow the 24-hour fever rule. No child should return to school until 24 hours free of fever without the use of Tylenol or ibuprofen. So that's unmedicated fever-free for 24 hours or longer. Um, She goes on to say, I cannot stress enough the importance of adhering to these guidelines. We here at the school are doing everything we can to contain the spread of illness, but we need your support in cooperation at home as well. And I just think that is so well said and just gives us as parents something to really sink our teeth into and to work with, to understand. And hey, that goes for you as an adult too. Um, As inconvenient as it is, it's really our responsibility to prevent the transmission if we're infected or if our children are. Um, I had to cancel last week because I was around people with the flu and this week because I had the flu um, or, you know, I caught the same symptoms on Saturday. I canceled all of my appointments. I canceled all of the babysitters because I didn't want to expose them to it. Um, I have yesterday, I had um, some labs that I needed to get done. I've been waiting three months for them. They're very tricky to schedule with insurance and just everything. And um, I had to cancel that appointment and push them out. But I wasn't about to bring my potentially contagious self into a hospital with sick people. I see that as my responsibility to keep this contained to my house and to myself. Um, So we do have, you know, some power there. So try to be respectful of that power, I guess. All right. And so let's move into treatments. Um, Of course, nothing I say here is medical advice. I am not a doctor. Um, Again, a lot of this stuff is coming from the book Herbal Antivirals by Stephen Buhner. I highly recommend picking up that book. You can grab it on Amazon using the link in the show notes. It's a really, really good one. It gives you lots of different things to work with. But he says, um, well, we'll get to what he says in a minute. Early onset. So this is what you can do if you start to come down with flu-like symptoms. Because, you know, the flu comes on pretty quickly. Like one second, you're like, I'm good. And the next second, you're like, I might be getting the flu. And the next second, you're like, I have the flu, right? So if you start to get any symptoms of headache, exhaustion, fevers, chills, sore throat, eye pain. That was a weird one. Um, Hattie kept complaining that her eyes hurt. Scott was wearing sunglasses inside the house for three days. Like, what is going on with these people? And then I was like, oh my God, when I got it, I was like, my eyes hurt so bad. I didn't realize that was, I I don't think, I don't know the last time I had the flu. I certainly cannot remember it in my adult life. So didn't remember the eye pain, that's for sure. Um, So at the first sign of feeling wonky, go to bed. Stop what you're doing and go to bed. This is not the time to just keep swimming, just keep swimming, right? That's how most of us navigate our life. We just keep going. 
at the first sign of an infection, you have to stop. You have to go to bed. You have to rest. You can spend $1,000 million on supplements, but if you're not resting, they're not going to work. Baseline, go get some rest. Put yourself to bed. And I know the moms out there who are listening are thinking, well, I can't do that. And that might be true. But arguably, more often than not, it's just a story that we tell ourselves. You probably actually can do that. It's about enlisting help. And I know it's hard to ask for help. And I also know it's hard to accept help when it's offered, but you don't have to be the martyr. Enlist help so you can take care of yourself so you don't feel like crap for three weeks. You know, maybe you feel like crap for three days, then you can get on with being the amazing caretaker and parent that you are. Um, One thing that I said to Hattie, who's five and a half, I said, um, because she was asking me for a lot. This was on Sunday. So the fever had broke, but I was still, you know, like not a hundred percent. And she was asking me for a lot. And I, I, got down on my knees and I looked her right in the eye and I said, Hattie, remember when you were sick? She's like, yeah. And I was like, you laid on the couch and watched shows all day long and mommy took care of you. She said, yeah. And I was like, remember when daddy was sick and he stayed in bed and he laid down on the couch and he watched shows. She was like, yeah. I was like, now mommy is sick. And that's what mommy needs to do. Right? Like she, I, I want to teach her that it's okay for me to take care of myself and it's okay for me to prioritize my health above what she might need in that exact moment. So we can do this and by doing so, we're also setting an example for our children because we want our children to take care of themselves, right? But how are they ever going to know how to do that if they don't have an example? So also at the first sign, don't work out. It's okay to take a break, right? So exercise, as great as it is for the immune system, when you're starting to come down with something, it's it's usually best to skip the workout. Um, on Friday, I noticed myself feeling like a little bit, like a little tired, right? Saturday morning, I woke up with like a full bone fever and like chills and all that. Friday, I was like, I feel a little off. So I, instead of going for an intense workout, I went for a walk. I took Murray for a walk and about a mile in, I'm like, I don't think I should be doing this. I feel a little weird. I'm like, eh, it's just a walk. No big deal. So I just went for like three and a half mile walk and I came back and I was like, shoot. I immediately went to the store to grab all of my like accoutrements because I'm like, I'm starting to feel bad. So that walk was a mistake. I should have just sat on my bum and rested, you know, coming down with something that, that in hindsight was a mistake, even though it was just like a simple walk. Um, I am not, I'm going to talk for a second about homeopathics. I am no expert. I don't understand homeopathics and I don't love to talk on things that I don't know about. (laughs) So What I'm going to do is put a link in the show notes to a guide on homeopathics for flu prevention and what to do and what to take if you start coming down with a flu. Anecdotally, I have heard nothing but amazing things with using homeopathics to prevent and treat the flu. And there's really absolutely no risk. So it's one of those things that it's like, can't hurt to try. Um, There is a very popular homeopathic remedy um, called, I'm going to butch it, oscillococcinum. 
you probably recognize it. It comes in a white box. Um, You can find that pretty easily at Whole Foods and health food stores and even at Walgreens sometimes and and drug stores. So that would be one to pick up pretty easy to find that you can take uh, at the onset of the, um, uh, if the onset of symptoms, but you check out that guide. Uh, Dr. Stephen or Stephen Buner also recommends that in his book as well. And then another thing, so I made this, you probably saw me post about it on, on, on Instagram when I was sipping on ginger juice. Um, ginger juice is, well, ginger itself is a very powerful antiviral and making ginger juice, you're like basically concentrating it. So it can help to shorten the duration of the infection as well as thin mucus and protect the mucus membranes. So you can take it right at the onset to like maybe kick the the virus out. Um, But even if you can't, um, it's still really helpful to continue to drink it throughout the virus because it's going to help with your symptoms. So what you should do is go out, buy a ton of organic ginger and juice it. And then you can take little shot, 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 shots of ginger juice, or you can um, use the recipe that's in the PDF guide. Um, I think I posted it on Instagram too, but basically you're, you're pouring like a shot glass worth of ginger juice into a mug. You're putting some lime juice, the juice of a squozen lime. Buner always says squozen in his book and I freaking love it. And you can sip that. He uses cayenne pepper and honey. Um, I didn't do the cayenne pepper just because I just didn't want to. And I wasn't doing any sugar, so I didn't do the honey either. So I did lime juice, ginger juice, and hot water and just cranked that. And it was amazing. Um, I, I happen to really love ginger. And you can do this for kiddos too, but ginger tends to be pretty spicy. Um, Hattie hates ginger. It's like her arch nemesis of food. So I couldn't get her to do it, but something you could kind of tinker around with, maybe doing a little bit more honey, a little bit less ginger. Um, Buna recommends drinking two to six cups per day at the onset of an infection. So you can kind of just sip on that. And it's like really soothing too and warm and nice. Now, if you don't have a juicer, um, you can use, you can use like a cheese grater and just grate fresh ginger into a mug. I'll also use a garlic press, you know, um, to like press out, you kind of cut a chunk of ginger, put it through the garlic press. And that's a pretty good way. I often use, that's how I cook with gingers with a garlic press. Um, and when, if you do have a juicer, make sure that you don't toss out the ginger fiber that's left over from juicing because you, you can take all of that. Did you hear me stutter? This is how exciting, exciting I, I think this is like, ah, can't get the words out fast enough. Ginger juice. So amazing. Um, you can throw it in a glass jar, pour some boiling water over it, and you can make tea from the fibers because there's a lot of juice left over. So you're buying up all this ginger root. You want to make sure you get the most bang for your buck. Basically, you're going to be doing a lot of weird shit with ginger. Um, so just like buy six pounds of it and buckle up for, for a time. Okay, let's move on to herbs. One quote from Stephen Buner, he says, there are thousands of combination of plant medicines that can be created to treat respiratory infections. There is no one right way to the truth, which I love, you know, 
Don't worry about getting this exactly right. See what you can find. Again, all this stuff is on my online dispensary, but you know, go to your local health food store, see what you can come up with, do some combination of them. Don't freak out that if you're missing one or two herbs, nothing's going to work. That it, you can't mess this up, okay? Just take care of yourself. Um, that's first and foremost. So the, his antiviral tincture formulation contains equal parts Chinese skullcap, isatis, licorice root. Um, I'm not going to even try to pronounce them because I'm going to mess it up. Lomadium, red root, yerba santa, elephant tree, osha, and or, immortal or pleurisy root. All right. The one that I didn't want to say was hutunia. <laughs> um, anyway, all of this is found in the PDF. So if you want to see the herbs spelled out, grab that PDF. So those, um, they all contain antivirals that can help to kill the virus and then keep it from entering the body. Um, licorice is a really good one. I use licorice. It's mucoprotective. It's anti-inflammatory. It's expectorant. Um, it's also an adaptogen. And then Chinese skullcap is anti-inflammatory specific to the cytokine cascades that the flu creates, um, it can lower fevers and it's also an expectorant. So what I did, I did a modified version. I used equal parts licorice, Chinese skullcap, and lomadium. And dosage needs to be high for it to work. So that is something that I got from his book because I've, you know, I've used herbs for, you know, 15 or more years. And I think sometimes why they're not effective is because I'm not doing them often enough. I'm not using high enough dose and not doing them consistently enough. And I think that's probably true for a lot of us. Um, recently on the on a podcast episode about why you shouldn't self-treat your gut, I talked about how our um, microbiomes aren't in a position to really use herbal medicine um, like they once were. So that could be part of it. But I think the other part of it is like, we're just not using high enough dose. I think a lot of us are kind of scared of herbs. Again, modern medicine puts a lot of fear into us about this sort of thing. So um, check out his book if you want a really structured guideline. Um, I think that's that's important. But he suggests for moderate flu, you do 60 drops, which is about half a teaspoon every hour. And for the severe flu, you're doing one to two teaspoons every hour. And he explains other reasons why the dosing needs to be pretty darn high for it to be effective. Um, he also recommends an immune supporting complex, which is equal parts astragalus, cordyceps, and rhodiola. All are active against influenza. Uh, astragalus and cordyceps are both specific for the cytokine cascade that started by influenza. Remember that those cytokines, we want to lower those down um, to prevent complications and to make you feel better. Um, they all have antiviral actions. They modulate an overactive immune response and they lower, lower cytokines. And the dose is the same as the other one. So for moderate flu, we're doing 60 drops every hour. For severe flu, you're doing one to two teaspoons every hour. Um, so that's a, that's a good one. Now I do want to briefly touch upon intermittent fasting. Um, you guys know my stance on intermittent fasting. It personally does not work very well for my adrenals and my blood sugar. Um, but kind of interesting because my body just 
naturally slipped into it on its own. In fact, right now it's 11 a.m. and I'm actually fasting right now. My appetite has been very, very wonky um, in that I wake up and I, I can't even think about food. Like I just can't even handle the thought of food. And then my appetite kicks on and I'm like, you know, eating really um, like plenty of calories, but kind of like very specific things. Anyway, I'm just following what my body is telling me to do. I'm go slipping into that. My body knows what it needs to do to take care of me. So I'm just going to continue to listen to it. If it tells me to rest, I'm going to rest. If it tells me to eat, I'm going to eat. If it tells me what to eat, I'm going to listen. If it tells me not to eat, I'm also going to listen. Um, I figured this is worth noting, noting because fasting promotes something called autophagy, which literally means self-eat. Um, our body has this system where it goes around and kind of scavenges um, and eats up old, broken down organelles and proteins and cell membranes and then recycles them for use because we don't want old, de destroyed cells hanging around, right? That's what causes disease or one of the mechanisms that drives it. So our body goes in and eats itself, um, which is just so fascinating. The body, again, knows what it's doing. Don't be afraid of your body start to work in harmony with your body, you guys can like power up and be, you know, a real power couple, a dream team, if you will. Um, so what turns off that process? Eating. Glucose, um, an insulin response, right? In response to glucose. Um, and also proteins all turn off that self-cleaning process. The main regulator of autophagy is something called mTOR, when mTOR goes up, it shuts down autophagy, and mTOR is very sensitive to dietary protein. So the reason that I say that is some people will say do a protein fast where you eat very little protein. And um, I mean, I think you have to like eat under 15 grams a day to really trigger uh, grams of protein a day to really trigger autophagy, which is very little protein. It's hard to do because, I mean, proteins and a lot of the different things that we eat. So you can hit 15 grams pretty quickly. I'm definitely above that. But I just thought it was interesting because I am so turned off by protein, like eggs, chicken, any like dense source of protein. I'm like, oh, I've been eating very, very, very low protein uh, the past few days. So I just think it's interesting that... Um, that there's kind of a reason that my body's doing this thing. Now, what I will say is don't force yourself into fasting. If you're hungry, eat. Like really, really listen to your body. Certainly don't um, force it on your children. Um, it's sad that I have to say that, but I do have to say that. So if your your kiddo is sick and they're hungry, feed them. Um, try not to feed them sugar. Um, I think just doing what keeping what keeps them comfortable. Make sure they're adequately hydrated. Um, bone broth is really good. We did a lot of coconut water, which, you know, obviously contains sugar. We did a lot of water, a lot of herbal teas designed for children, um, and a lot of water. Hattie had no appetite, you know, and, and when it came back, it was a little bit weird. So we did some smoothies and things like that. Um, but trying to honor, and then obviously monitoring, you know, where she was at and all that stuff, make sure she wasn't getting too weak and that sort of thing. It wasn't a concern for me. Oh, a quick thing. I did get asked about the, um, the child's cold care tea that I posted. Um, and I got that at the mustard seed in Nottingham, but they also have a website, I do believe. So, okay. 
That's what to do at the onset. What if it takes over and you're, you're symptomatic? What if you're feeling like poop? Here are some things you can do to ease your symptoms. Um, and we have to talk about fever for both yourself and your child. Fevers can be so nerve wracking. Um, keep in mind, they do tend to climb in the evening, which is generally when you're feeling the most stressed and anxious about it. So that's always good for the old anxiety. Um, it, but there's even a term for it. It's called fever phobia and started about 20 years ago. Um, parents are just terrified of fevers in their children. Um, I'll link to a couple of different, a couple of different, um, reports. One is called fever phobia revisited. Have parental misconceptions about fever changed in 20 years, which is saying that as a parent, your worry about a fever actually is a misconception. Um, one of the quotes from it is, parental concerns arise in part because of the belief that fever is a disease rather than a symptom or sign of illness, right? The fever itself isn't the problem. The fever is responding to what's going on inside the person. Um, another clinical report from the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, I'm just going to read this whole darn quote because it's it's really important. Fever in a child is one of the most common clinical symptoms managed by pediatricians and other healthcare providers and a frequent cause of parental concern. Many parents administer uh, fever-lowering medications even when there is minimal or no fever because they are concerned that the child must maintain a quote-unquote normal temperature. Fever, however, is not the primary illness, but is a physiologic mechanism that has beneficial effects in fighting infection. There is no evidence that fever itself worsens the course of an illness or that it causes long-term neurologic complications. Thus, the primary goal of treating the febrile child should be to improve the child's overall comfort rather than focus on the normalization of body temperature. When counseling the parents or caregivers of a febrile child, the general well-being of the child, the importance of monitoring activity, observing the signs of serious illness, encouraging appropriate fluid intake, and the safe storage of medication should be emphasized. Now, I personally don't treat the fever um, since it doesn't help them clear the infection any faster. So I kind of like to take a hands-off approach, let the immune system do its thing, try not to interfere too much. I'm constantly monitoring Hattie, watching how she's doing, um, seeing, you know, is she laughing? Is she cracking jokes? Does she, you know, it's normal for them to be a little bit under the weather, but like, is she completely not herself? Those are all signs that, hey, something you know, something, something warrants the parental attention here. Um, fever is not an illness, right? It's the body's natural response that helps to fight infection. So they're actually a good thing. It's a good sign that the immune system's jumping in and responding as it should. Um, anything over 100.4 is considered a fever. Most fevers are in the range of 101 to 103.5. A high fever is anything over 103.5. Um, and again, like we were talking about the sauna, the body's raising the, the internal temperature to create that inhospitable environment for the buggies that are making 
us sick, right? So the the idea is that if we let the immune system and let the fever do its job, it's going to kind of handle things on its own. Now, Tylenol, ibuprofen, those types of medications can reduce the fever a little bit, but they're not addressing the underlying cause. They don't shorten the duration of the illness. Um, they can definitely make your kid more comfortable, make you more comfortable, which, you know, if somebody's in a lot of pain, we want to ease that pain. We don't want them to feel terrible just for the sake of like suffering, right? But they carry risks. Um, I talked about last week, I think, that Tylenol um, has been associated with liver toxicity. Um, it burns up your body's glutathione stores. Ibuprofen and other um, NSAIDs can cause gastritis, and it doesn't take much for them to cause that stomach bleeding and, and problems. So, you know, use them with discretion. They should not be the very first thing, in my opinion, the very first thing that we turn to anytime we get into like a little um, issue. These, um, This is all from Aviva Ram. I'll link to her. She has a really good uh, article about it, which I think is good to read because it's not, you know, like you got to kind of like soothe your soul a little bit as a parent when your kid has a fever. So I will post a lot of good things to read if you're trying to make that decision of like, how do I handle this? And it's not just like from like weird bloggers that have no business giving this information. It's from pediatricians. It's from medical doctors. Like I myself am not either of those, right? So like, let's really listen to the people who should be giving this advice. And I, I think that's important. Um, so basically she says, see the doctor. And I, I, I'm, po- I'm saying this because I, I want to make sure that I cover my grounds and I, it doesn't come across that I'm giving um, piss poor or irresponsible advice. So there are times when you would want to see a doctor for a fever. For all babies under one month old, if they have a fever, you got to take them to the doctor right away. Uh, babies under three months old with a high fever should be seen by a doctor. Any kids who are not taking fluids, they're not urinating a normal amount, um, or they're not acting right should be seen by a doctor. Like what I was talking about before, right? And if something's a little off, take them to the doctor. That's what we ended up doing with Hattie. She had a fever for two days, then her fever broke. She was totally cool. Three days, she was symptom-free, fever-free. She was like kicking ass, taking names. And then she woke up with a cough one morning. And we're like, this is weird. And she was just off. And I'm like, I, I got to keep this kid out of school. I got to like shut down everything because this this isn't right. And by the, the um, I would say 11 a.m., I was calling the doctor. I'm like, we got to bring this kid in. Something's off. I just knew. I could see something was not right with her. And sure enough, she had the flu. So glad we did. Um, influenza A. Um, who else did you bring to the doctor? Any kid that has a fever with a stiff neck, persistent vomiting, or severe headache should be seen by a doctor. If your child has severe ear pain or severe belly pain, if your child is lethargic, that means he's not really like waking up fully. He seems weak, uh, sort of limp, just lying there, doesn't really make eye contact. Um, if the fever stays high for more to th- more than three to five days. If you feel worried that your child has a serious illness, take your child to the doctor. And she goes on to say, remember, trust your mama intuition, better safe than sorry. The, um, and like I said, um, in talking to different people, it seems that the general guidelines are anything above 104 
might warrant some intervention. Um, again, not medical advice here, but like if if it's under 104, you're probably fine to let it ride. Uh, if it's above 104, you might want to do something to to reduce the fever. Now, some natural things because somebody asked me this: What are some natural things to do to reduce a fever? Peppermint tea um, is a diaphoretic; it makes you sweat, so that would be a good one. The ginger juice will also do that, but again, if you're a child, um, ginger juice can be a little rough because it's spicy. Um, and then taking a tepid washcloth, putting it on your forehead, putting it behind knees, putting it in your armpits. Those are all from my cousin who is a pediatric nurse. Um, and I employed some of those tactics on, on Hattie and she seemed to really like it. It seems to like make her feel better. Um, so those are all things that you could do for yourself or for your kiddo. Now, if you're dealing with fatigue and body aches, go to bed, get your hiney in bed. Now, it might not be easy to sleep if you're uncomfortable. Just get to bed, you know? Don't be romping around the house trying to do all of the things like fold laundry. Go to bed. Consider your fatigue an invitation to sleep. Fancy that, right? Most of us try to push through the fatigue, but what would actually happen if you gave in? Your body knows you need all of your resources to fight off this infection. So it's trying to shut you down so you can do so. So listen and respond to that fatigue, to those messages your body are sending to you. Go to bed. And another thing that I don't love about Tylenol or Advil, while they can make you feel better, they can also give you a false sense of how you really feel and what you can do, right? So you might end up overexerting yourself and prolonging the illness rather than just responding to the fatigue and going to bed. Um, I have been doing a lot of sleeping. Uh, last night was the first night that I didn't like put myself to bed at like eight o'clock, but I feel like that's part of what helped me kick. I had, um, I slept for 13 hours, Saturday into Sunday, 13 hours. And I woke up on Sunday feeling so much better. So it's like, what would happen if you just gave yourself permission to get the actual rest and sleep that you need? Um, I all remember before, at the start of the show, I mentioned using hemp CBD oil from Coyote River. I would go chickadee check their stuff out. That really helped me feel a lot less crummy. It helped me get some sleep. Um, I would highly, highly recommend that. Um, an Eps, uh, oh, I, I promise I would mention other plants that reduce the cytokines of flu. I mentioned some already, but just as a recap, Chinese skullcap, ginger, Kudzu, licorice, bone set, and astragalus all can lower the inflammation. Uh, excuse me, yeah, lower the the uh, flu cytokine. So those would all, could, you could work those into rotation as well. Um, doing an Epsom salt bath, I on Saturday I was just feeling so bad that Saturday morning I climbed into an Epsom salt bath and I stayed there for like an hour and a half. I was having so much leg pain, my legs just felt like just so heavy. So I just soaked my legs, but I did it in pretty tepid water, sort of accidentally. And I felt great. I was there like 
answering emails and like texting people and like having a great, great time for myself in the bath. Um, and then the next day, Sunday, I was like, oh, I should do this again. But I made the mistake of doing it like in the evening. I um, got into a really hot tub thinking it like, oh, the, the heat will feel so, so good on my body. Well, it brought back my fever. So I spiked a fever for a few more hours after that. So I wouldn't recommend doing a really hot uh, tub if you are like around a fever, you know, but doing it in a, a tepid, like lukewarm tub can really ease uh, some of those body aches. And then essential oil steam. So this one I got from Buner and worked really well. Thyme, eucalyptus, rosemary, sage, they're all antiviral for influenza. They can all reduce the coughing reflex. They can thin mucus. They can help clear mucus. They can improve airflow to the bronchial tract. So all good things to do with a cough, congestion, cold, and the flu. Um, he says to boil a gallon of water and add 20 drops of each. That sounds alarmingly high uh, because I just did maybe like six to eight drops total and it was like stinging my eyeballs. So I would I would say maybe like a couple of drops of each if you have them or whatever you have. I don't think adding 80 drops of essential oils, I mean, I guess it would be really powerful and potent, but I think it would like burn your face off. So just be careful with that dosing. Um, but a few drops really, um, really was quite lovely. I did that for Hattie too and allowed her to breathe in the steam. And then for any type of upper respiratory infection, which includes the flu and the coronavirus, I would strongly recommend NAC and acetylcysteine. It's mucolytic. It breaks up and reduces mucus. It's good for lung issues, sinus congestion. If you have a wet cough, uh, it can break up the mucus in the lungs. It also is a precursor to glutathione. It helps to build up the glutathione levels. Uh, a dose for adults would be five to 600 grams. I'm sorry, no, five to 600 milligrams um, three times a day. So you want to take it, it, it has a pretty short half-life. So you want to take it regularly throughout the course of the day, um, for your symptoms. Um, Dr. Ben Lynch said recommends not taking it at night because, because it breaks up mucus so powerfully, you could be up coughing all night. Um, he also says don't take NAC with a dry cough, but that would be something to do. Um, you could also bring in a humidifier with filtered water. Here's the deal with humidifiers. They are gnarly. Like they're really gross. Um, we have gone through about, I don't know, like seven humidifiers since Hattie's been born because they're notoriously hard to clean and yet they grow mold because it's just like a pool of water. I used to clean it all the time and it still grew mold, but I couldn't fit my hand inside the container to like really get in there. So I found an amazing humidifier. It's called Miro, M-I-R-O. I'll link to it in the show notes. I got it on Amazon and you can disassemble it, take apart part all the parts and put them in the dishwasher to sterilize it. It's also pretty like sleek looking. So I love that one. Highly, highly, highly recommend. We've got our humidifiers going on full blast. Um, I also got a different one just to test it out. It's Honeywell in the basin is pretty easy to clean in that one too. So I would recommend either of those. Um, 
Also, something that Ben Lynch taught me that I did not know is that glutathione levels in the lungs are low after infection, so it would be good to supplement with glutathione post-infection if you had lung involvement. Okay, you guys, so that was a lot per usual. Um, Before we close out here, I do want to announce that I'm going to be speaking at a local event, Align. It's a day retreat and it's going to be here. I I did it. um, I spoke at it last year. It was awesome. A really, really cool event. This year it's local. So it's going to be in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at All Plus One. It's on Saturday, March 21st, right after my birthday. So you can come celebrate my birthday with me. Um, It's going to be, the entire event is from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. So it is an all-day affair. I'm going to be chatting about the connection between our brain, our gut, and our hormones. A really good topic, lots of Q&A. And I will link to it in the show notes, but you can grab your tickets at um, thealignexperience.com. Use code ERIN2020 to save 20 bucks off of your ticket. Um, that promo code expires on February 20th. So you do want to grab those tickets. Lickety split. And that's it, you guys. Um, Again, if you enjoyed this, I would be so honored if you would leave me a review on iTunes. It's so helpful. Give me a five-star review if you think I'm worth it, but also go in and like write a written review. That's really helpful so other people can see what this show is all about. And if you want that PDF guide, uh, be sure to go to the show notes, click the link, and you can grab it. I'll email it right to you. All right, you guys, stay safe out there. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you 